Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello. Wales are all but through, Turkey are all but out, they've been stuffed, and which one at the start of the tournament should we say was a dark horse again? Italy make it 29 unbeaten, one off that great 1930s unbeaten record from the double World Cup winners under Vittorio Pozzo, and Finland's momentum is dead with a loss against Russia in St Petersburg. Now they'll probably need something against Belgium to qualify. I'm Jake from What If Football, this is the Euro Daily Podcast episode 11 available on Acast, Apple, Amazon and Spotify where you can if you're generous, give us a like, give us a subscribe and that 5 star review if you are enjoying today's show also available on Patreon that is patreon.com forward slash whatifootball where after the European Championships we'll be giving you 7 days a week content that being a contemporary weekly football podcast and other nostalgic podcasts such as head to head, great games as well as Football Manager content Thursday to Sunday. So let's get on with today's show. So we start with Wales versus Turkey in Baku, the cauldron that was supposed to be Baku, but in the end it gave Wales a lift and maybe not so much Turkey. Wales were unchanged going into the game, keeping four at the back from their opening draw against Switzerland. Dan James and Gareth Bale had seemingly swapped wings or were fairly interchangeable throughout. Meanwhile, Kengiz Under came in for Yusuf Yuzici for Turkey, who didn't really impress on opening night. Meanwhile, Khan Iron came in at centre-half for Juventus centre-back Mary Demiral, whilst Ozan Kabak remained on the bench. And it was really the stars of the show were Wales's biggest players in essence. Gareth Bale and Aaron Ramsey were finding each other throughout really and Gareth Bale's determination was seen early on mopping up a second ball then picking out Aaron Ramsey with such a deft through ball that the the, the composure that was so needed from um, the second game in such a high stakes arena but Aaron Ramsey as he would do quite often during the first half uh, missed a one-on-one chance it was saved by uh, Chaka coming out of the coming out of the net there were little sniffs for Turkey early on Wales were caught napping from a quick free kick which is one of the only gripes I sort of have about them in this game is from 
set pieces they weren't entirely switched on weren't the best at um, coping with them and obviously we saw that against Switzerland in the same venue on Saturday with Braille and Bolo and that the mismatch was against Connor Roberts in that one. Roberts, another hero from this game, which we'll uh, discuss later on. So Brooke Gilmaz was caught in behind on a quick free kick, but his shot was deflected wide, and that's pretty much how close Turkey got in the first half, really. Wales were quick on the counter. There was always a danger, always a, a plan within a plan. You had the Bale and Ramsey duopoly there going forward, but you also had Kiefer Moore, and he was found in the area, but he headed over um, early on. And I think another worry for Wales is the uh, the double pivot of Joe Morello. Joe Morello, I thought, was absolutely fantastic as well, by the way. Um, going forward, pressuring as well. Uh, Joe Allen as well. I don't think the double pivot isn't as protective as it could be. Um, there, was, there was long balls finding uh, Ken Gizunder and Hakan Chathanoglu in between the lines, but a snapshot from Ken Gizunder, the volley was well saved by... Uh, well saved by Danny Ward, who again had a uh, great game. I've written in my notes that Chalhanoglu would exploit this uh, this gap fairly fairly soon, but in the grand scheme of the game, he kind of went missing, which for Tur- one of Turkey's key players is kind of damning. He's not had the not had the great tournament that we all thought he might have had in a group where they needed to get up and running quite quickly, and he's he's kind of flopped really, which is embarrassing. Um, he's out of contract. You'd have thought he would be. Playing for, playing to get his name out there in terms of the transfer market. I've no doubt that he will join a big club this summer, but you'd have thought under the uh, duress of his contract expiring that he might have been performing to a higher level than he than he otherwise would have to to earn a different contract. Going the other way, Dan James's delivery was very good from the left when he moved out. Um, Gareth Bale was a good target on the back post. Kiefer Moore, of course, and in the First stage of the first half, anyway, Wales were by far the better team. Dan James was the best player at the time. Um, obviously, that onus would shift to Gareth Bale, would shift to Aaron Ramsey as their link-up continued. And in fact, a few minutes, probably at that half-time stage of the first half, Bale and Ramsey combined, carving open the Turkish defence, which was pretty shambolic, really, um, in the first half and in the second, really. Um, but Aaron Ramsey was wasteful, blazing over the bar for that one. You got Turkey really, the only way they damaged or looked to damage Wales were from set pieces. Khan Iron was close from a set piece. And it goes to show that against a better team, they might go punished in um, in that one. We saw in 2016, Cristiano Ronaldo heading in from a set piece. Obviously, this is a far different team from um, the one in France five years ago for Wales and for Portugal really, but that's by the by. So, Sagunchu so got his... Header cleared off the line as well. Iron got his cleared off the line as well. And so these were from back-to-back corners. So there's definitely a problem for Wales. Something that definitely needs to be worked on ahead of the third game against Italy, which is pretty much a buy because with the result that they got here, they're all but through really. But it is definitely something at the back of my mind anyway that that needs to be needs to be worked on. They had obviously from those two chances, they'd got men on the line. Um, from the last game, they got the message there and there wasn't any men on the posts for the first game against Switzerland, which obviously they were punished by in Baku in the 1-1 draw this time. If there weren't men on the post, it would have been 2-0. Maybe 1-0 because Ian's header, I think, was drifting wide, but there we go. Turkey were really growing into the game in terms of the first half, um, probably had the better of the second part of the first half 
but they did have a sloppiness about them. They tried to play up from the back, but the crossfield ball was intercepted by Gareth Bale. Um, the one shining light for me was uh, Chaglas Yonchu mopping up the uh, mistakes of his teammates, really, and probably one of the only Turkish players to come out of this with any uh, any positivity, really. But third time lucky, Gareth Bale to Aaron Ramsey, found in behind the Turkish defence again, and you um, couldn't say that the warning signs were out there. They had uh, two warnings throughout the first half, and um, Ramsey tucked it away uh, fantastically. And the failure to not identify this danger, that's going to encapsulate Turkey's performance at the European Championships. They were passed to death in the first game. They were carved open in the second game. And I said in the preview video, at least, that Turkey would finish 4-5. I wavered, sadly, and bowed to the bowed to all the hype that Chalhanoglu was going to come good, that Burak Yilmaz was going to bang goals in for fun. I put them in second in my... Revision, obviously, they can't finish second now, can they? Because they've lost the first two games. Meanwhile, Wales have got four points. So I'm going to go, I'm going to be a charlatan and stick with my first my first uh, prediction and say they finished fourth and say I was correct all along. And that is, of course, if they don't win in uh, in Baku, and of which point then I was completely wrong, apart from Italy, if they win also. So going into the second half, we had uh, Mary Demirali came in, Yusuf Yazici had been dropped, he came in, so he had Ozan Tufan, okay, Lakorslu, they were both out, and um, Ayan went, stepped up to uh, defensive mid, and it goes to show his versatility, really, and instantly, Turkey had a bit of a, came back onto the front foot, really, Yazici instantly found a wicked delivery into the box, but Keenan Karamen, was kind, he was very, very quiet, wasn't he, compared to the first game, and even then it was limited opportunities uh, he couldn't convert and neither could Yilmaz um, Turkey on the other hand were offering Gareth Bale far too much room between the lines he would keep continuously finding Aaron Ramsey and they just didn't get it into their heads that this was the plan it was so bizarre to watch um, Gareth Bale had a volley that went over he was absolutely in acres of room and the fact that he's quite clearly their star man probably the best player they've ever had um, done the most for them at least but he was running at defenders, he was finding chances, he was picking them off, he was being creative with the ball, but nobody seemingly could sniff out that danger. And maybe if it was Joe Morel getting on the ball, he kind of might um, excuse it. But the fact that he was providing the same passes over and over again, even if it was a Joe Morel, no offence to Joe Morel, that you would have been able to sniff that danger out at least by the second half but Turkey the defence it was absolutely nowhere really and um, Turkey just refused to sort out the danger and uh, even in the second half Wales still uh, likewise they didn't sniff out the danger from set pieces Yilmaz was found out in acres of room six yards out but missed it fluffed his lines missed an absolute sitter but in the corresponding box Ramsey was always dangerous Wales were far better in this first than in the first game, really. At least going forward from set pieces, I've still got my uh, my qualms with that. Um, but Gareth Bale was running the show. Aaron Ramsey was running the show. Dan James had another excellent game as well. And Bale, he could uh, he wasn't running at defenders as much as we've seen in the past, but his, his creativity was superb. And Turkey were always gonna we're always going to struggle if uh, players like Zeki Celik was dangling a leg out when Bale was running at defenders and to concede the penalty, of course. 
they were handed a reprieve when Bale missed the penalty. And in a crazy minute, really, the, it was a tardy clearance from the goalkeeper that hit Gareth Bale and nearly went in just seconds after he'd missed the penalty and Turkey were just all over the shop. They offered very little in open play. They were going, for, it seemed as though they were going to counter-attack, but Borak Yilmaz is not counter-attacking forward. He's 35, he's not got a great deal of pace. What they could have really done is go the way of Russia where they just pump balls into the box kind of thing, but they never got that sort of dominance in the middle third, which is surprising really because they've got three people in the in the midfield there as opposed to, I know Aaron Ramsey's plays, you know, it was more of a 4-2-3-1 and Ramsey was much more offensive than uh, than the Turkish midfielders. They could have dominated that a little bit more, I feel. Um, Bale still hasn't scored for Wales since an equaliser in October 2019 in qualification against Croatia, and that is 16 games ago, 13 for Bale in the uh, in the lineup. Meanwhile, for Wales, I think in the second half, they'd uh, shored things up a little bit between the gap between the midfield and defence was uh, good, and Turkey, they had nothing to answer for for that they didn't have anything to answer for it when the gap was gaping in the first half, so definitely not in the second half. Wales were a bit more resolute defensively. And finally, on um, I think it's day five or day four of the championships, we had our first fight of the tournament, which took long enough. Um, the tension obviously overriding for Turkey as the, their heads just went, didn't they? Um, and in the end, hampered them even further because the second goal in this game it pretty much puts the nail in Turkey's coffin of qualifying for the uh, for the second round because they've now got a minus five goal difference. Gareth Bale went on a schoolboy run through the byline from a short corner. It's the type of goal that you see in the last minute of a under-12s game when it's like 15-0 and the, the heads have gone. They've got no temperament. And Gareth Bale just ran through and then give it to Connor Roberts. And Connor Roberts went, for, went forward... Um, and scored against the wishes of his uh, centre-halves, I think. But regardless, don't matter. 2-0, Wales are pretty much through. They've improved that goal difference a little bit more. So even if four points wasn't enough, the plus-two goal difference, no matter what happens in Italy, you know, a thrashing, permitting, really, they're through, aren't they, really? Meanwhile, Turkey, they, they need a big, big win against Switzerland. And they, despite the talent that they have, Chalhanoglu, Izici, Kengizunda... Killing Karaman, Borak Yilmaz, it just doesn't look like they're going to get that big win against Switzerland. And even if they do get a big win, will three points be enough? Um, it's looking more and more that it might not be with uh, certain draws um, that have gone on in the other groups. So, for example, Sweden and Spain drew, meaning Slovakia only need another point really to be assured of it with their win against Poland. Obviously, Poland are quite dangerous in and of, in of themselves, so... Three points might not be enough and it especially won't be enough if they've got to minus five goal difference. We'll talk about that later on um, after the Italy game. But Wales, for me, better going forward. I'm not entirely convinced defensively. Obviously, they will um, they will always succeed defensively when uh, Turkey are playing half-hearted crosses into the box and Chris Mepham and Joe Rodon are um, so good defensively in the air. Um from set pieces, I'm not entirely convinced. Um, they haven't been truly tested. They haven't faced a great team yet, um, which they will do in uh, a couple of days' time against Italy in Rome. Meanwhile, Turkey were just as toothless in attack as they were in the first game. Uh, defensively, weren't too great. I think they uh, regressed slightly, if anything, um, from Friday night. And uh, Wales, quirky little stat here, Wales have now the second most wins in the Euros over the past tournament and a bit, only behind 
France, they've won five games, France have won six games, so I'll leave you with that to mull over after this short break for the 2021 Trivial Teaser. Welcome back. So, the 2021 Trivial Teaser, I think I made it slight, a touch uh, more difficult, because we've only had three correct answers today. The answer was, of course, Toby Alderweireld. Well done to Jake Collinson, Pazza, and George Spencer there. Well done. Today, I'm a forward, and I've been managed by Neil Lennon and Ralph Ragnick. Some of my teammates have been Ulian Draxler, Joel Matip, Virgil van Dijk, Raoul, and Tim Krull. Yes, I'm a forward. I've been managed by Neil Lennon, Ralph Ragnick, Ulian Draxler, Joel Matip, Virgil van Dijk, Raoul, and Tim Krull. If you think you know the answer, tweet me at whatif underscore YouTube, as Jake, Pazza, and George did yesterday. Now, after this short break, we'll be going to Rome, we'll be going to St. Petersburg for the games between Italy and Switzerland and Finland and Russia, and we'll be also previewing today's games where we've got a couple of uh, smashing fixtures for you today. Welcome back, so let's go to Rome and to the evening game between Italy and Switzerland, on paper at least, Group A's biggest teams coming together for the second fixture in this group. Switzerland were unchanged and out for their fifth European Championships draw in a row, but of course that run would end. Meanwhile, Italy were out for a 10th successive win in a row without conceding 29 unbeaten, which of course both came true in Rome in a fairly simple game for the, uh, can we now say dark horses or are they premium contenders? Right, so... De Lorenzo came in for Florenzi, who had a little bit of a calf niggle, who um, of course came off halfway through the opening fixture. I was worried that De Lorenzo was going to be ultra-attacking as he was in the last game, but he did press high, but um, but then again, so did the majority of the team, which is a clear um, plan for Roberto Mancini's Italy. Switzerland were keeping that 3-5-2 alive, but regardless, Leonardo Spinazzola was uh, still playing extremely high, in the uh, in his uh, left back stroke, left winger role really, cutting in on that right foot. And he did create the first big chance of the game, but Chiro Immobile headed over. And in the absence of Spinazzola from that left back, or sort of left space position, left channel position, uh, you had Manuel Locatelli covering in that left half space, probably in a, in an act that was fearful of the speed of Kevin Mbabu or of Braylon Burlo on that counter-attack for Switzerland. And in the 3-5-2, there was a doubt in the back of my mind, at least, um, obviously with a different shape and a different um, playing method that uh, Italy could have been caught on the counter, especially through Embolo against the likes of Bonucci and Chiellini and also after Chiellini went off um, Francesco Acerbi. The fluid front three for Italy was whirring once more in the opening stages and they just looked irresistible as ever. They were even higher than against Turkey and um, I just felt that surely it couldn't be maintained. It was just absolutely relentless and obviously there was there was peaks and troughs to this. They would uh, dip a little bit um, after the, well, sort of before the halftime break. They'd dip obviously once they'd found the second goal and the win was effectively assured and um, anything else was a bonus pretty much and... Um, for all the passing, for all the high-tempo, beautiful play that we see in quite a lot of club teams at the minute, not so much on the international stage, but Italy have sort of seemingly found that. 
Um, Giorgio Chiellini thought he'd scored via one of the most scruffiest goals you're likely to see. But unfortunately, it was ruled out. I thought it was kind of harsh, uh, but it's obviously the rules now. Um, for handball, VAR got, in, got into it. And it's probably one of the only VAR decisions that took more than probably 30 seconds to a minute to, to, um, to resolve, which is kind of, it's a really positive look on VAR. Obviously, we've been moaning about it all year, haven't we, in the Premier League, which just goes to show it's not VAR that's the problem, it's the people behind VAR. And maybe specialist VAR officials should be appointed like we've uh, seen Lee Mason, I think he's going to purely be a VAR specialist and that, that should be the case. He shouldn't be on referee duties one day on a Friday, VAR on the Saturday and then back um, fourth officially on a, a Sunday or a Monday. It's just absolutely insanity. So Switzerland had the potential threat from a counter. Let's just say potential because there was no threat in reality, was there? Um Chiellini, he his hamstring went. It might have been fully gone, uh, in which case he's out for the rest of the tournament. It might have just been a tweak, and he's just precaution because they obviously knew that this wasn't the game to. Uh, this was not the game to sort of risk the injury to the essentially the captain and one of the better players in the team. Um, Acherby came on also in his thirties, so there's still that uh, niggling doubt in the back of your mind that they might get done on the counter attacks, which I thought. Where's Alessandro Bastoni? You know, he's, he's slightly younger, slightly different um, profile. But, I mean, Acherby's got experience. There's still that experience there that it was needed over the line. And to be fair, Switzerland didn't really offer much anyway. It could, they could have put a half-baked Marco Verratti in the centre-half and it wouldn't have made any difference. Going forward, though, Italy were clinical again. Dominic Cabarati racing down the right and capped off a superb move, Manuel Locatelli attacking the box from deep, the number five there, and it is one of the perfect team goals that we've seen at this tournament, really, and the two Sassuolo men, Antonio Conte remarked last summer that he didn't want to sign players from Cagliari or Sassuolo, and then the uh, two Sassuolo players joining up, Nicolo Barella, slightly, slightly off picture there, formerly of Cagliari, of course, um, and it was just a a beautiful, uh, beautiful goal, really. And with Locatelli playing like he did in this game, you sort of wonder how Marco Verratti gets back into the squad, who they're going to drop to get Verratti in. Does Verratti even come in? I mean, Locatelli could play deeper, so you could drop Jorginho, um, but that doesn't solve the pivot problem, the uh, the problem where the pivot has to be very defensive against bigger teams that, the, that they face, that they're going to face further down the line. And... Um, you could drop Barella, but then you lose that that Metzala on the right hand side with with the back three as it is in possession and Barella drifting out to the right to make width. You don't have that threat anymore. Obviously, Berardi will cut in. Chiesa would as well if he if he starts. And I I just don't see any. I don't see how it, it it's going to work. Obviously, a couple of people on Twitter have been mentioning you could drop Jorginho, you could drop Barella. Um, that that seems to be the consensus consensus from Twitter, but. I think just leave Verratti on the bench, work his way up to fitness. And obviously when it comes to the big, big games, see how Locatelli is doing by that point. Um, obviously Verratti has big game experience, Locatelli less so. Obviously he's got, he got dropped by Milan for Sassuolo. Um, and obviously you can't base someone's quality off the back of an international tournament because of, you know, national pride, etc., etc. It's only seven games. Um, but Locatelli was superb. Obviously playing in Rome, it's going to help. It's going to boost Italy a little, that little bit more. So when it gets back, when it gets to the big games and Italy aren't in Rome, maybe that's the point where 
if someone has to be dropped, you drop them and work Verratti's fitness up. They obviously, I think they played a an under twenties team. I think it was Pescara, and Verratti got a couple of minutes under his belt there. He'd probably come on or maybe even start against uh, Wales. We don't know yet. He m- might be a much changed team from um, the first two games, obviously with Italy. One Italy, they are the first confirmed team in the last sixteen with this um, with this win. For Switzerland, the midfield was it was utterly vacant. Shakiria was pretty much non-existent the forward two were non-existent there were no runs on from Braylon Bowler there was no hold-up play by Harris Seferovic certainly no goals or chances at goals um, the creativity from Shakiria was at an absolute minimum the wing-backs they did get forward and you'd have thought with, with uh, Spinazzola being so high they could have capitalised but they just did not get any del- any form of delivery into the box you've got Gavranovic coming on for Seferovic, which means Seferovic has now scored just one goal in 13 tournament matches. And by minute 51, it was game over. Switzerland were bypassed like they weren't there, like so many times during the match. There was um, there was interplay with absolutely no pressure on the edge of the box, which is just mind-numbing if you're a Switzerland fan. Surely you must be screaming at the television. Remo Freuler wasn't there. Granit Xhaka was completely absent. And... Locatelli under seemingly no duress bangs it into the bottom corner fantastic goal uh, he's having a storming tournament and um, he's now level for the golden boot with uh, such luminaries as Romelu Lukaku Cristiano Ronaldo and as we'll see later on Chiro Mobley and of course can't forget Patrick Schick there as well and um, Italy were very calm in possession even in their own box it was setting traps for Switzerland to make forays into the middle third and the the rate at which Freuler and Jacko would buy into these and fall for these traps was just alarming. They they would just clip the ball over them and then you had a three on three, four on three. It was just incredible to watch and the lack of this defensive responsibility that Switzerland showed was just amazing to watch really. I know Italy are a fantastic team but Switzerland helped them out a, a massive amount here. Um, I thought Nicola Barella was a touch quiet on, on this game and he didn't need to have a great game for Italy to be fantastic. Locatelli on the other side of things on the left hand side more than made up for it though. And finally as we crossed over the hour mark Donnarumma actually had a save to make uh, with Zuba coming on. It must have been Donnarumma's one of his first saves in the tournament so far because they've fairly been untested. Um, but to say the Italy haven't been tested defensively they were alive to it and it's fairly impressive. Um, I thought Zuba gave Switzerland a little bit of oomph going forward, but then again, it's a substitute, it's an impact, but then that impact slowly wore off. Um, Xhaka, I thought, was severely flagging as the game wore on. The game opened up. Italy were threatening a third. The third would, of course, come. Chiro Mobley from distance. Lacks Switzerland possession in the uh, in the defensive third. And then another 3-0, essentially, where Italy didn't need to be at their best. Switzerland were even worse than Turkey were earlier on in the day. Um, I worry about Switzerland's goal scoring and going into the final match. I might, I think Turkey might nick it, but I've, on the other hand, it could just be a draw. And I think it's got the, it's got the makings of either being a really entertaining watch or just being one of those dour games where neither want to lose. They, they neither want to uh, push forward in fear of going out of the tournament, really. And it leaves the group like this. Italy are on six points. Wales are on four points. Italy through, confirmed as the first qualifiers. And uh, Wales 
pretty much free. It'd take something for them not to go through. Switzerland are on one and Turkey are on zero, both hanging by a thread in the tournament. And obviously, the uh, goal difference for Turkey being at minus five almost ends their hope, but they will wait on other results from around the groups as well, even if they get their win. Um, Switzerland's goal difference is now at minus three, which does not help them in the slightest whatsoever. But a win, you would have thought season through. I had a look at the historical averages in terms of 2014 tournaments and the average seems to be around three points um, but around zero or minus one goal difference to get get you through um, that would have been the case in the last tournament as well so Wales are all but through on this average Switzerland will need a win in Baku um, Turkey a win for them even if it's a big win you sort of fear for them as well and um, I wouldn't be too disheartened if you're a Switzerland fan losing to Italy even though the performance was pretty shocking anything in Rome would be a bonus um, in terms of Italy the only team I worry for them is against France with Giorgino as that uh, pivot in midfield the slow in centre halves could be a problem we saw we saw a couple of nights ago with uh, Kylian Mbappe making Matt Sommel's his bitch really it was just incredible to watch and if Italy do press forward it's going to be France like to sit back and then hit them that is going to be an incredible watch um, and I think that's the only way Italy come unstuck in this tournament from the first few games anyway obviously they could they probably will have to play Belgium before that um, semi-final that I'm earmarking for them already but we're only two games in um, it also, also it obviously depends on what France and what Belgium do Italy could easily avoid both of them and make it all the way to the final but I think Italy the only team that I think have looked better than them or have the potential to be better than them in terms of matching up with them, is probably France. So earlier on in the day, we were in St. Petersburg, weren't we? Well, I was in my front room. Um, Finland versus Russia. Finland knew that they would be the first team to qualify with a win in um, St. Petersburg, but a point would be pretty much enough. The same story as Wales, really. Um, Rasmus Schürrle came in for Captain Tim Spav in the midfield, still experienced, so he's, he earned his 50th cap or 51st cap in that midfield. Um, meanwhile... On the other high, on the other side, Stan Churchisov had some big decisions to make. Yuri Zhirkov was ruled out for the rest of the tournament. Meanwhile, he had Kudrashov, Kuzyaev, and Golovin all doubts. All three though would make the uh, starting eleven. Meanwhile, Safonov, the uh, young goalie, was in for Antonin Chunin, who made a bit of a howler in the first game, didn't he? In the loss to Belgium, Deveev was in for Semyonov. Kuzyaev was a bit deeper from his uh, left wing role the other night to uh, cover for Zhirkov at left wing back. It was the same midfield three whilst uh, Miranchuk effectively came in for Zhirkov, really uh, playing high up to compensate for Kuzyaev at left wing back. Muranchuk was slightly off Zuber in a 3-5-2, the kind of, um, if you play football manager, it'd be more like an engonched uh, sort of uh, stitching together play, not running around a whole deal and being perceived as this like lazy number 10, a bit like Ozil really, um, but obviously it would be the uh, game changer there. And um, it was much better than the four, the back four that was attempted in parts against Belgium. I don't know what Russia were thinking in trying to match Belgium pound for pound like that. Um, but in this game, Russia came out fighting. They needed a win. The home crowd was behind them. Finland only needed a draw, so they could sit fairly deep in that 5-3-2 that they play. And the plan, you know, like the first game, it, it was just crosses from Fernandez and Ozdoyev on that right channel. Ozdoyev would drift out in the uh, right centre mid-roll and just ping balls into Zuba 
and it was an attacking plan, a one-dimensional plan that remained from the Belgium game, one that we'd seen from the first game that Finland could withstand. They've got three defense central centre-halves in the box. They can withstand that all game, really. Um, they were sloppy in playing out with Russia, though. A Yuka Ritala cross-found Poyapalo heads in, and within three minutes, it looks like Finland uh, going through, and it's heartbreaking, obviously offside ruled out by VAR great decision because he's he's a he's half a head offside isn't he really uh, but it is a warning sign for Russia the defensively side of things are shocking again and um, Ponya Palo almost find Puku with a simple ball over the defence as well the line the defensive line for Russia clearly wasn't working uh, Robin Lerd found uh, Ponya Palo again behind the defence the shot was blocked so Russia again this is like 15 minutes in constantly consistently finding the strikers over the over the defensive line and Russia were just absolutely shocking to say that Stan Churchishov in a previous life when he was playing for Russia was a goalie you'd have thought that defensively they would have been sound if not you know if they if they might have been toothless in attack slow in the midfield you'd have thought the goalie in the defense would have been would have been shored up but in essence it's the weakest part of the team which is ridiculous when Russia changed plan or when they looked to explore other avenues like playing interplay between Golovin and Miranchuk, they looked a lot better. Miranchuk was composed in the box. I thought he added a lot. He didn't play. This didn't start the first game, of course. And um, he found Ozdoyev with uh, Ozdoyev breaking the lines as he often does. Um, got on the end of a pass, but he blazed the shot over on the back post. And it was this different avenue that I thought Russia looked fairly dangerous. Um if they would do that and not just pump balls into the box to Zuba, just lazy strategy really for Russia, then then they've actually got a chance at this tournament. I predicted sort of that Finland would beat Russia, and um, obviously the uninspiring form that they'd had, the uninspiring plan of getting the ball into the main man, who's fairly sluggish at the best of times, is not the player that he was three years ago. It's quite clear now. Um, split the crowd uh, down the middle as well obviously as a Zenit player um, in his home stadium but if going into the, going into the tournament he's had uh, some legal issues let's say uh, find that out if you want I'm not um, exploring that any further um, so Finland they had warning signs of their own the Ozdoyev shot the uh, Zubi she struck the he struck the post he was offside though he was offside quite frequently in this game to be fair um, but enough hampering on uh, Zuba's lack of uh, play there um, there was a mix-up for Finland, the only really mix-up in the game where you got two players going for the same header, which might have allowed Zuba in, but again, Zuba was slow to react. And in both boxes, I thought Russia was shocking. The build-up was good, the build-up was all right. Um, Finland did very well to uh, quell Zuba's threat and the long balls into him, I thought. And they were always going to it's three, three centre-halves on one target man, whilst Miranchuk and Golovin were slightly off him. And they were never going to get into the box for headers, were they really? The only threat really outside of that is Ozdoyev breaking the lines. I thought Finland played much neater and crisper football on the rare occasions that they did get forward. They were fairly um, fairly composed. Robin Lerd, I've liked the look of this tournament. Um, he would break from the midfield three a bit like Ozdoyev really to feed the forward line to uh, pass it out wide to any fullbacks that might venture dare to venture out beyond the uh, five at the back. And just as I was composing my notes to type in that Russia needed that needed to utilise Golovin and Mirachuk a bit more 
Golovin was playing delightful passes behind the defence. You've got Urenan with a, an absolutely superb intervention on the back post, which uh, almost took his eye out with a uh, flailing leg there. But was, the Finland were putting the bodies on the line. But then the the game changer came, the composure. The Miran truck played a simple give and go, curled it absolutely delightfully into the top corner. And that is exactly what Russia should be doing. The number 10s behind behind you, but they're, they're the best players on the team. They they create a lot more for Russia. Obviously, you could get them feeding in Juba, but the long ball game for me, is, it, it doesn't work, especially against teams that play three at the back and who are willing to put their bodies on the line for what is essentially their first tournament ever. So they're going to be heightened by that. They're going to be wanting to throw themselves at the ball as well. It was a superb finish. The scoreline blows the group wide open, really, because of the head-to-head rule, which puts Russia now ahead of Finland. And um, in terms of its second half attacking talent, I thought Golovin was fairly wasteful. I don't think he threatened too much, not to the likes of Miranchuk. And I thought Miranchuk, in the second half, his drop-off was quite incredible, really. And aside from that, Russia did not threaten at all in the second half. I've been fairly unimpressed with them um, so far in the tournament. He had one spark of uh, genius, and that could be all that you need to uh, get through in the tournament but as we say minus two goal difference with three points obviously if they lose to Denmark that'll be minus three at the very least that isn't going to be enough I don't think to uh, progress into the last 16. I was surprised it was no Marcus Fors and Frederick Jensen in off the bench when Finland needed that they, they stuck to a 5-3-2 the entire game there's not even a 3-5-2 you know sort of switch late on they wasn't throwing bodies forward there wasn't Martin Keown prompted for a long ball and when seemingly they'd heard him, they threw the long ball in and it got cleared instantly. Obviously, I'm not calling for the long ball, but more bodies forward. They'd shown that they were quite composed in the build-up and finding Puki and Poi Palo. Um, I just thought maybe throw, throw on a different name. Frederick Jensen's decent enough from coming off the bench. Fars as well, um, decent enough. On the from coming from the bench and making an impact as well, but neither neither really did it. Um, Zema Letdinov provided an impetus for Russia. Went on, I think I thought he was their biggest threat for Russia going um, forward in the second half. Um, Miranchuk provided him with a through ball, but his good chance went wide. Um, the only the only sort of change that Finland made was O'Shaughnessy dropping into the midfield, bursting forward a little bit more, and. Um, in doing so, they opened themselves up a little bit at the back, so maybe I shouldn't become a football manager at all. Because um, yeah, I've had a good chance well saved late on. Russia, they weren't fantastic in this game either. They were not they were absolutely dire in the first game, losing 3-0 to Belgium. And it sort of shows their level is slightly better than Finland, maybe on a par with Finland, miles away from the top-tier teams, of course. And then we'll know a lot more about them. Um, maybe not even a lot more, but... When they play Denmark, Denmark, of course, we don't know what's going to happen, how they're going to react to Saturday's events. We don't know how they're going to be, what their mindset is. But of course, they play Belgium today. And obviously, the narrative that runs through this is the player well-being mentally. They've had crisis meetings following the trauma of the Christian Eriksen collapse on um, Saturday. Um from what I've seen, Kasper Schmeichel seems to be uh, up for it. He's been to see Christian Eriksen in the hospital. It's just come out as I'm recording this that he's uh, having to have a pacemaker fitted. So in terms of his career 
I'm not entirely sure how that will pan out. It doesn't seem too good in terms of his career continuing, but obviously it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. The fact that his lives enough, really, isn't it? Um, we don't know how Denmark are going to be feeling if they're going to be over emotional, especially playing the game in Copenhagen as well. It's going to be a huge Danish presence in there. Could be over emotional, but in fact, with uh, Ericsson's situation dramatically improving from Saturday, of course, um, there could be this sort of re- relaxation and sort of empowerment to play nice, creative football, as we know they can do. Of course, on the on Belgium side, Belgium have in their ranks, in their starting eleven, especially friends of Christian Eriksen, Jan Vertonghen, Toby Adeverald, Romelu Lukaku, who've all played with him, Lukaku still plays with him, yeah, into Milan. Obviously, we saw the touching tribute from Lukaku after his goal, after his first goal against um, Russia there. So, in terms of mental well-being, we don't know how either team are going to line up, really. Um, I just slightly think that the quality for Belgium might get them off here but it could be a draw it could easily be a draw because um Denmark will be will be very up for it they'll be well up for it and so will everyone will be behind but Denmark will be and rightly so and in terms of uh team news Timothy Castagna looks to be missing for a couple of weeks due to a similar eye injury that Kevin De Bruyne got really um De Bruyne looks like he might miss this game uh, but he might come on for a few minutes Eden Hazard got minutes against Russia could start but like I said in the uh on Sunday morning I liked that Tog and Hazard, Yannick Carrasco interchangeability on the left. Uh, Thomas Mounier will take over Castagna more than apt, and if more than apt to replace me. If you did want an injury, it probably would have been to Castagna, uh, because Mounier is top quality right wing back as well, if not even better. In terms of the second game record, neither have a great, neither have a positive second game record at the championships. Denmark have won two in seven, um, which is a two 0 win against Bulgaria in two thousand and four and a 5-0 win against Yugoslavia all the way back in 1984. Meanwhile, Belgium have won two of four, winning their last one against Ireland in 2016. Moving on to Ukraine and North Macedonia, the early kickoff, and now Ruslan Malinovsky didn't have the greatest game that we all expected against the Netherlands, but I think Ukraine will be far more attacking here. You'd hoped, anyway. They were they were fairly toothless against uh, the Netherlands. Obviously, they had a, a bit of quality from Yarmolenko in the set-piece goal from Yaramchuk, but at will that they attacked Yarmolenko, attacked Daily Blind, but didn't capitalise on it. it, was just so maddening for me anyway. Uh, I thought the Netherlands were there for the taking. Um, they will be in neutral territory here in uh, here in Bucharest against Macedonia, but you'll See that you'll know that they will attack surely. They've got Malinovsky there, Mercurial number 10, but let's not forget Macedonia have one of their own, LFL Mass, the Napoli man. And I think here the big battle is probably going to be Yarmolenko against Alyovsky. I thought Alyovsky was so offensive against Austria going forward, whilst um, Yarmolenko couldn't just beat him for pace, tuck in, and obviously his party trick is tucking and scoring, as we saw in the Amsterdam Arena, Johan Cruyff Arena on um, Sunday night and in terms of second game record of course Macedonia don't have any record but Ukraine have lost both of their games 2-0 and is that an omen? Probably not but it's nice to uh, nice to wish anyway it's going to be a fantastic game I'm very excited to see what Ukraine do in terms of going forward I wasn't impressed with them going forward because I thought they could have scored 4-5 against the Netherlands that's how bad I thought the Netherlands were defensively Macedonia play three at the back as well now, of course, we could see the same patterns of play there against, obviously, an admittedly worse defence in uh, Macedonia. But I'm excited to see Yamalenko versus Alioska. I think that's going to be the big battle. 
And after that, we've got the Netherlands against Austria. And obviously, the story running through this is tactically for Frank de Boer's side. Will they stick with the 3-5-2 or will they go 4-3-3? Um, tactically, I prefer the 3-5-2. I have said that Netherlands should ditch it and I'm not not saying that they should keep the 3-5-2. But in terms of tactically on paper, it's, it suits the Netherlands. Um, the... Denzel Dumfries, it helps him massively. He can go forward. He was excellent the other night against Ukraine. But it only works if everyone's fully invested, fully briefed in the uh, in the role. Urien Timber, Daily Blind was so high, it almost left Stefan de Vrij as a one. Now, Mathis de Litt will be coming back. It is expected anyway. So you'd expect to see some a bit more a bit more defensive cohesion in there with two of the uh, Two of the Netherlands' better centre-halves, or best centre-halves at the tournament, really. Um, and the point is, who do you drop there? I would go probably for Blind. And Blind has spoken out recently that he was affected, obviously, by Christian Eriksen, former teammates at Ajax, of course. And he said that he wasn't in the right shape of mind, so maybe that could have that would have hampered him in the game. Jurian Timber, I liked. Um, 19-year-old, performed great against Ukraine, albeit positionally wasn't all that there. Uh, Martin Deron probably should start, and I think he needs to def- screen the defence a lot more. Obviously, if the con- centre-backs continue to go walk about, as they often do. Um, a much calmer, lower tempo of the game would help Frankie de Jong. It didn't suit him with a gung-ho, end-to-end attacking style in midfield. His tempering of the ball, for me, is one of his best qualities of ball-carrying, his progression up the field, supplying the likes of Memphis Depay, Wout Weghorst, Denzel Dumfries, of course, bombing on on the right wing back role. I think that suits him a lot more. But Austria won't be pushovers. They showed on Sunday that they have bits of quality sprinkled in and out. They'll have to deal with one of those bits of quality in Marco Arnautovic, who's serving his one match ban for using a slur in his celebration. He could have been banned for 10 matches, but UEFA opted for a different rule in terms of uh, abuse, not uh, racial abuse in uh, in that one. And um, in terms of second game record, Austria are undefeated. They've only played two games and they've not won any of those games. They've drawn 1-1 against Poland in 2008 and 0-0 with Portugal in 2016, which means absolutely nothing. Meanwhile, the Netherlands have won four of their eight second games in the history of the tournament. I'm probably going to go for a slightly edged 2-1 win for the Netherlands in that one. I think they'll be in too much quality on show, but I do think that leaky defence will concede once more in what has been probably the most entertaining group of the tournament so far, definitely the most goals um, with five in the Dutch game, four in the Austria game from the Sunday night games so hoping for more goals in both of those Group C games, whatever happens, we'll be covering it tomorrow morning and of course of course previewing the huge game that is England versus Scotland on Friday night and of course previewing the uh, the other fixtures, Croatia versus Czech Republic, and one of the groupie fixtures that I have failed to check up on. And anyway, we'll be covering that. We'll be covering so much more. And of course, you can find that on Acast, Spotify, Apple, and Amazon, uh, where you can, if you're enjoying the show, of course, leave us a lovely five-star review. And you can find us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash football throughout the uh, championships with the podcasts until july the 12th and of course after the championships have finished we'll be providing content every day for 50 weeks a year for the price of a pint here in yorkshire anyway which is three pounds so if you're listening from london that's a cheap deal 
<laughs> anyway, we'll be back tomorrow. And until then, see the up the three lines. Podcast Network. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello.